Mark chapter 14 has been the lengthiest chapter of all of the Gospel of Mark, 72 verses, which is why I feel like I've been repeating myself. Okay, Mark chapter 14 again this week. There's been a lot in this chapter. This section of Jesus' life, so much detail given. Chapter 14, we'll look at the, the, the denial of Jesus by Peter and the trial of Jesus with the, uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Chapter 15 is a trial that takes place before the civil authorities and, then, uh, and his crucifixion. And then chapter uh, 16 is his resurrection. So we're coming to the close of the Gospel of Mark, maybe within the next year. I think we ought to be able to get it done, or hopefully sooner than that, and we'll move on to the book of Acts. But for now, uh, we pick up in verse 53 of chapter 14. We've uh, been with the disciples at the Last Supper, the prediction of Judas betraying Jesus that we have been through as he was betrayed in the garden. Jesus was by Judas, and the soldiers came and have led him away. We have seen the prediction by Jesus that Peter would deny him three times. Peter was certain he had the wrong guy, certain that Peter would, would never do such a thing, he was going to stick it out with Jesus to the end, no matter what, even to die with him. Well, we'll see the result of that prediction coming true here in chapter 14 toward the end. Uh, Jesus has been in the garden sweating great drops of blood. It's a cold night. We'll see that because Peter is warming himself by the fire here in chapter 15. But yet, even despite the fact that it's a cold night, Jesus sweating uh, with that sweat mingled with blood as he's under the pressure of the weight of the sin and the wrath of the Father put on him on our behalf, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press. And that, so he's been there praying. Uh, he's been arrested. He's been led away. As we look at the trial scene, I, just, I can't help thinking about uh, just how fascinated we are with trials. Uh, not our own trials, not those kind of trials, but Legal trials. I mean, you think back to the O.J. Simpson trial and how, just as a nation, people were just glued for months to their TVs to see what would happen next. And there's all of these various trials that have taken place, and we are fascinated with those things, whether it's Judge Judy or Judge Joe or whatever judge show that's on during the daytime TV hours. There's just, we have this fascination with that. Well, the most compelling trial that would have no doubt commanded CNN and all the others would be uh, right here in, uh, in the ch- 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, the trial of Jesus Christ. And it's a powerful trial, and we get pieces and parts of it from all of the different Gospels, so we have to compile them to get a whole picture. Let's pick up in verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. So Jesus is led away. They've they've been arrested in the garden. The disciples all fled. Take note of that, because Peter's life is highlighted. But all of the, the disciples fled. Why is Peter's life highlighted? Well, I'll let you mill that over for a little bit, but I always think about what if it was my life that was highlighted? How would you like your life highlighted and memorialized in the pages of God's Word for everybody to read your failures, your successes. Uh, We're all filled with those things, both of those things. So we like Peter because we connect with Peter so much. 
But Peter's, Peter's uh, situation is highlighted as we get into this. Uh, chapter 14, 53, um, led away to the high priest. Now, the high priest at the time was a man named Caiaphas, uh, but they didn't lead him there first. You have to consult another one of the Gospels to find out that first they took him to the place, the palace of a man named Annas. Maybe you know his name. Annas had previously been the high priest. He was the one that was in charge of those uh, temple, um, the money changers, that, the tables that Jesus overturned. That was all his money-making scheme and scam. Annas was the power broker behind the power. He was Caiaphas's father-in-law. And he was the one with the real power, although Caiaphas had the position. So they take him first, not to uh, Caiaphas, but first to Annas. And then from there, he comes to the high priest, Caiaphas. The trial of Jesus is going to have three stages on the religious side. There's three parts to the religious trial and then three parts to the civil trial. So there's six parts altogether. We'll see today, uh, some of it we'll get from here, some from other places. First, he'll appear before Annas. Then he'll appear before Caiaphas and a representation of the, what's called the Sanhedrin, or what verse 53 uh, calls all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. That's their ruling body, this group of 70 men called the Sanhedrin. These were the, the judges, the uh, professionals, the religious guys that were in charge on behalf of the nation of Israel. And then the third part is early in the morning, then Jesus will appear a second time more officially. This is the pre-trial trial. This is the trial where they make the decision, and then the morning trial will be the one where they sort of put the stamp on it. You know how that goes, right? There's the pre-meeting meeting where all the powerful people get together and decide what the meeting's going to be about, and then the meeting is just a formality. Well, that's how this trial was. And Peter, of course, verse 54, he's there. Which is interesting because all the disciples had fled. At the, at the end of the time in the garden when the soldiers had arrested Jesus, Peter had cut off the high priest's servant's ear and, and everybody had fled. But Peter only got so far, he's still intrigued to see what's going to happen. They're still struggling to understand when is Jesus going to actually fight? When is he actually going to you know, get serious about this? Matter of fact, Matthew tells us that Peter followed him at a distance to the courtyard. His interest was to literally see the end. He wanted to see where all this was going. What's going to happen? So he's following, but he's following at a distance. He gets into the courtyard. Uh, I think it's uh, the Gospel of John, possibly, that tells us that John is there with him. So it's not just Peter. It's Peter and John. John seems to have access into the, to the courtyard of the high priest, and he gets Peter in there. And while Jesus is being interrogated, Peter uh, is there by the fire warming himself. Now, he's following at a distance because he doesn't want to be identified with Jesus. It's a scary time to be identified with Jesus because Jesus is in trouble, right? So he's sort of, he's sort of in, you know, Jesus has never stopped, I, I, my opinion, I don't think Jesus has ever stopped really loving, or Peter has ever stopped loving Jesus. It's a different situation than Judas. But he's sort of stuck. He's sort of experiencing this period of weakness in his life. He's going to go through a failure. Uh, and he's following at a distance. And I think the challenge for you and I is in some ways in our own culture, Jesus is still on trial, isn't he? There are those that say, well, he's just a mythological person. Most people don't say that. Most people agree to his historicity, but many disagree with who he actually was. But people do deny the existence of God. And so we're sort of stuck 
because we live in what's called and what's been called by experts, whoever they are, that this is a post-Christian era. Have you heard that term? We live in what's called a post-Christian era, which means we've come past the need for Christianity in our lives. Again, as a general sense, uh, you can see it happening in the, in the life of our country. Look at decisions that are being made on uh, court levels. Uh, no more discussion of what the Word of God says or what the law of God says. Uh, Ten Commandments being removed. Fewer and fewer people, especially of the younger generation, that are having any affiliation with a church. Uh, all that to say, as a nation, we are moving to more secular and less Christian Um, Our morality is no longer defined by the Bible, but whatever seems right to the people that are in the powerful positions to make those decisions, or whatever seems right in your own heart. Just like in the days of the kings, people did what was right in their own eyes. So living in this post-Christian world, we had a baby dedication this morning, first service, and recognizing it's harder now than ever to raise your children to be believers in Jesus Christ because of the way the world is. So in some ways, you might work in a, at an academic institution or you might work in a place where, well, it's a more liberal-leaning kind of place or maybe your family is more liberal and so now you're wanting to profess Christian morals, but you know it's not popular. So what you end up doing is falling into this place of compromise where you're sort of, I want to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't want to follow too closely. I don't want to follow too, follow too closely that people might suspect that I'm a believer because it's not popular. So we understand as Jesus is following at a distance, we understand what that means in our lives because I think we've all been there, either in word or in deed. We've either denied him by not saying or doing something we should have or by saying or doing something we shouldn't just because we want to fit in, just because we want to not be uh, an outcast from this group that we want to be part of. So we appreciate Peter, and, but he's still, he's still interested. He's still there warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. So this trial, this part of the trial, the whole trial really is really a sham trial. There were a number of things that their own regulations about how to conduct a trial stated that they, that they broke during this time. For instance, number one, their own regulations for, for the proceedings of a trial said that they couldn't have a trial during a feast time. And what time is it? It's Passover time. So that already broke one of their own regulations. Second regulation you'll see that gets broken is they weren't allowed to cast uh, a group vote to condemn someone. They had to, cast, they had to individually vote. So you know how it is when you're in a group and you're not sure what you think, and you're listening to what other people think, and you can easily be swayed because you don't want to stand out as being different. So they would cast, they're going to cast this group vote against Jesus at this early morning trial, or actually middle of the night trial. And uh, they're supposed to cast votes individually. Uh, Number uh, three, the death penalty. If you gave the death penalty, you had to wait uh, another night to actually pass that sentence. But they're going to pass it, look to pass it right away. They're, they're not supposed to ever have a trial at night. Who thinks clearly in the middle of the night, right? So you don't want to be determining matters of life and death and justice in the middle of the night when people are tired. So these guys had convened in the middle of the night to try Jesus. Again, another strike against them. And finally, they weren't allowed to ask any self-incriminating questions in a trial. So you could plead the fifth 
if you wanted to, unless they put you under oath, then you had to answer. And that's what they do to Jesus. His own words they use to condemn him. That was typically not allowed. How did someone get condemned in that culture, in that time, in, those, in that justice system? By the mouth of two or three eyewitnesses. And so back to this section, they're trying to find, look, the, those that are in charge of justice are seeking false testimony. They are determined. They've already made the decision in their heart that he's guilty. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens. You hear something. You get wind of something. And you've already made the determination in your heart that that person is guilty. Without even hearing the evidence, without even hearing the story. You've read it on Facebook. And someone has, has made, a, uh, made a statement. And you go, oh, I can't, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe that happened. And you're already, they're already guilty. There was no trial. There was just one witness, and you believed it. Folks, be smart in relationships. Try to hear all sides of the story before you make your determination. I mean, don't you, the Bible tells us everybody sounds right. The first one that brings their case, that states their case, sounds right until you hear the other side of the story. And you go, oh, they didn't tell me that. So be careful. Let your jury be smart, the jury of your heart. Not seek to find what you want to be the truth, like they're doing. They knew Exodus 23. They knew the commandments that said, Thou shalt not bear false witness. But yet they were still trying to find a false witness. But the problem was, they couldn't get two of them to agree. So, very frustrating for them. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. So a couple of people stand up and they say, well, hey, we heard him say this. But did they get it right? Those of you that know your Bible, that know John chapter 2, what did Jesus say about the temple? Do you remember? Did Did he say, I will destroy this temple? No. He said, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. He wasn't even speaking about the physical temple. He was speaking about his body and the resurrection. But even if he was, he never said, I'm going to destroy this temple and build it again. So they've twisted his words, or they've somehow combined his words. They, they've, it's already in their heart that they want to bring a false testimony. So to do that, they're willing to sort of be close, but to twist the words. Have you ever heard someone twist your words? Has that ever happened? For me as a pastor, sitting here 45 minutes on a Sunday morning every week after week, I hear people say something, well, we heard Pastor Steve say this, and I'm like, I'm not sure, but I don't think I ever said that. (laughs) I'll have to re-listen to the tape on that one, or the CD. Uh, I don't think I said that, but it, it happens all the time for a number of reasons. Be a good listener. Be a good listener. Really work on your listening skills in your life, because it's so easy to filter what's being said through your own, you filter it through yourself and through your emotions and then what was said is far different from what was heard. You can get two people together that are going through the same conflict and you hear them both talk about the thing and you wonder if they were even in the same room. It's like, well, that's completely different. Like, it's like, couldn't be more different. So it starts in the heart and then it moves to the ears. You got to be a good Pay, pay attention, ask questions for clarity. All this to say they had taken his words and twisted them. 
And Jesus, rather than trying to justify himself, look at verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, do you answer nothing? I mean, listen to what they're saying. How do you, what do you plead about this thing? What do you say for yourself? What is, what is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. You know, there's a time to talk, but there is a time to just zip it in Jesus' name. I mean, there's a time to just, because we have a tendency to try to do what? We try to justify ourselves. And, and it's just like quicksand. Have you noticed that? It's just like quicksand. The more you try to explain, the more you try to justify, the deeper it gets. And so I think there's great wisdom. Jesus is just going to let them try to hammer it out. He's not going to aid aid their cause. Because whatever you say can and will be used against you. When you're in that situation, when you're in the middle of a conflict, it's going to be misheard. It's going to be misunderstood. And uh, because its emotions are flying. And so sometimes it's better just not to say anything. Do you have that kind of self-control? It's that that kind of person that has that kind of self-control. That's, James talks about the tongue being a hard thing to control. The tongue gets us in a lot of trouble. I think Jesus is being wise here in just being silent. Isn't that, isn't that nice sometimes to just know I don't have to defend myself, I don't have to justify myself. Maybe it's best if we just say nothing at all. There's a time for that. I'm not saying there's never a time to, to have a conversation and talk about things, but sometimes when, when emotions are high, it's best just to be quiet. And Jesus is doing that, verse 61. Maybe some, for some of you, that's a life verse right there. <laughs> but he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I think it's Matthew uh, that tells us that Jesus was put under oath. In other words, the high priest, with Jesus being silent, said, Hey, uh, we've got to get him to say something. So they make him, they put him under oath, which means he has to answer. And the question they ask him is not whether or not he's God. Did you notice that? They don't ask him if he's God or not. They want to know if he is the Messiah, the Christ, which is the Savior, the one predicted by their Old Testament. They had very certain connotations of what the Messiah would be like. Jesus wasn't like what they wanted. They thought he was just a big liar and that he wasn't the Messiah Because he wasn't doing what they thought the Messiah would do. So they say, you tell us now. We're going to put you under oath. You have to answer. Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed. Son of God. And so now he's got to answer. And again, I come back to that. uh, The trial issue is they're going to ask him this self-incriminating question. And now they're going to use his own words against him. And he has to be truthful. Why? Because he is truth incarnate. He cannot lie. He is, if he is God in the flesh, one of the attributes of God is that he cannot lie. There's a few things we say, oh God, all things are possible with God. Not all things. You know, one thing God can't do, God can't change the past. God can change the future, but he can't change the past. God can't change. He's, he's immutable. That's the word immutable. He can't change and he cannot lie. So Jesus now has to tell the truth about himself. And I think what he says is meant to jar them. I mean, they're, they're in this mode of pressing forward with, with this condemnation against Jesus. And I, I think what he says here, they're trying to, Jesus is trying to get them to stop and think for a second about what they're doing. And so he says, I am, 
Ego I me, the, the, the I am statement, that the same type of statement that was made to Moses from the burning bush. I am that I am. In the Greek, it's ego I me. And he doesn't stop there. See, that's why I, he could have just said, I am. End of story. That would have been enough. But he adds something. And when Jesus adds something, it's not by accident. You know, he's not going to say too little, but he's also going to not say too much. So what he says is perfect. He says, and you will see the Son of Man. Speaking of, that's a messianic term. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The insinuation is coming in judgment. He says, I, I am the Christ, and you will see the Son of Man, where? At the right hand of the power. The power. Sometimes we have this false sense of our own power. And, and world leaders have a false sense of their own power. The power. The ultimate power. The Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, is God himself. He's the one that is the power. And Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting there. Where? In judgment. See, it's not Jesus that's on trial. It's them. They think they've got Jesus where they want him. But Jesus says, actually, you are condemning the judge. That's not a good idea. It's not good when you condemn the judge. And notice this, that they are actually in their actions, condemning themselves. See, people, I get this question a lot. Well, why does God condemn people to hell? So number one, he never designed hell for people. Hell was designed for the devil and his angels. God's desire has never been that any people would be condemned to eternal darkness, separated from God. But people condemn themselves by rejecting God. So that's what they're doing. He says, you're going to see, this is your chance. You're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the, clouds, uh, with the clouds of heaven. You can read that in Revelation. Now, are you sure you want to do this? Now, of course, from a human level, I say that, that they had a choice. But from a divine level, from a God's perspective, they were just carrying out everything as it was meant to be. They, this is all happening just according to the Scriptures. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be condemned then by the Romans. They're going to crucify him. That's exactly what Isaiah 53 talked about. So on one hand, it's working out just as God planned. But on the other hand, God always giving opportunity for repentance all the way through. I believe they had every chance. Nicodemus is there. He's one of the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Sanhedrin. They're in this group. Uh, we don't know if they're participating in this early morning meeting. Remember, not all of the Sanhedrin are probably represented there, just a small group. Verse 63, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? So the high priest, very influential, very powerful, turns to the group. And when he says, What do you think? Do you think he really means, like, share your honest opinion? Do you think he really means that? Or do you think he means, you better agree with me? I'm guessing that's what he means. But I'm sure that they, 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 they did anyway. His, the tearing of his clothes, uh, Old Testament sign of grief. Uh, in, the, in the religious context, a sign that, that someone has blasphemed. They have undermined the power authority of God some, somehow. And then the high priest would tear his clothes to show grief over that and to, to show a disturbance over that. 
And he says, we, don't, we can stop the trial now. No need to call any more witnesses. Whew. They weren't having such success with the witnesses anyway. No need to call any more witnesses. He's just condemned himself. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So everybody that was there got in on it with the high priest. And now look at the behavior that begins to be exhibited. All of this, you can imagine the scene if you were there in the courtroom, in this private upper room, in the, in the private residence. They never met privately either. They were supposed to meet publicly, but now they're meeting privately. They've got Jesus there. And look at the behavior. As it, if it wasn't bad enough that they were able to compartmentalize their lives so much to lie and to they knew exodus 23 but yet now verse 65 then some began to spit on him and all of this sign of rejection sign of rejection i i did a little research more than i should have on salivary glands last night aren't you glad that i do that kind of thing because i'm thinking here they are spitting on him with salivary glands that he sovereignly designed as part of the human body. The Bible says of you and I, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Did you know, I won't bore you with all the details about your saliva, but did you know (laughs) that even in, in tasting your food, you would never be able to taste your food if the saliva in your mouth didn't already start to break down the molecules so that they could join with the the taste receptors on your tongue. And and already the process of digestion begins there because of the way God designed your ability to dissolve food down to its nutrient components so that they could be utilized by your body for nutrients. This is one of the the things saliva does. And there's more. But what right do they have to use the saliva you know, the, the gl- saliva glands and the saliva produced by glands God created to spit on the Son of God. And then they blindfolded him and began to beat him and say to him, prophesy. So if you, you, you're the Messiah, you, you, you can prophesy, you can tell us who's hitting you. And just begin to mock him. I don't know about you. I'd have a hard time keeping it under control, man. If I would, Jesus, don't believe the pictures that showed, showed Jesus as this frail guy, you know, this frail hippie guy from California, you know, light skin. And I don't care what Jesus looked like. He was tough. He knew how to take a beating. And the thing about him is he never lashed out in return. He never lashed out in return. How's your self-control in your life? How's his self-control with your tongue? How self-control with your actions? Do you tend to, when someone lashes out at you, do you just take it patiently like, like Peter said to? I mean, Peter watching this happen. And Peter writes in his epistle that the real blessing is, is you know, sometimes you're, you're, you're beaten as a slave or as a servant or as an employee, you get in trouble because you blew it. You did something wrong. And, well, if you take it patiently, then big deal. I mean, you should, you blew it. But if you do everything right, if you work hard, you show up on time, you do your best work, and the boss still has it out for you, and he still's never happy with what you've done, and he still comes down hard on you, if you take it patiently, he says that's commendable before God. Because Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And in some ways, like Jesus, as an example for us, in some ways, folks, not in the salvation way, 
But in some ways, we are sin bearers like Christ. Just as people sinned against him and he took it, people are going to sin against you. And they're going to sin against me. And they're going to lash out at us. And I used to say, you know, maybe when people are nailing you to the cross, I pray that we would bleed love for them. Rather than lashing out in return. Because that's, that's, where, that's where real strength is. You know, I learned a long time ago, the guys to be scared of, when I was working in the bar scene many years ago, there were the guys that would run their mouth and run their mouth. That was because they were weak and they tried to prove that they were strong. And I find that people that are confident in who they are don't have to run their mouth. They don't have to lash out. They have the ability to just to take it and, and to forgive it and to overlook it and, and not have to justify it. And Jesus is doing that right here. They began to spit on him. I mean, has, I don't know if you ever had that happen to you. That's nasty. And then they were beating him saying, and mocking him. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And now we turn back to Peter, verse 66. The, the camera shifts now. Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came as Peter was in the, in the courtyard. Remember, he had come in with John. And as we even just, before we even go further with this, I mean, you know what's coming. You know the word. You know what's going on here, uh, what we're going to see Peter go through. But just remember a few things about Peter. This is the Peter that walked on water, that Jesus was there standing in the water, and, and he said, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come to you. And Peter got out of the boat, and Peter walked on water. And this is the Peter that was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw the glory. Same Peter. And there he is now in the courtyard. A servant girl comes to him, and when she sees him warming himself, she looks at him and says, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. And literally it it would say, you are with, with that Nazarene Jesus. It's a much more condemning way. You see the difference in wording? You're with that, uh, that Nazarene Jesus. And so it's nighttime, so Peter, it must have been the glow of the fire or something. She catches a glimpse of him and she says, hey, wait a second, I recognize you. Because he was just trying to, just like you and I, he was trying to fit in. I just don't want to stand out. I just don't want to be noticed. The problem is when you're a Christian, you get noticed because you do stupid things that other people don't do, like forgive people, like bless people who curse you. Like love people in need, like, like desire to be hanging out with people who are outcasts. You do stupid things like that and it gets you noticed. So if you want to just blend in in a, in a worldly world, and if you're blending in in a worldly world, maybe it's because you're worldly. I guarantee you Jesus will make you stand out. Being a follower of his will make you stand out and more and more in the culture we live in. Just trying to blend in, man. Just trying to see what happens here. I don't want to get noticed. And she notices him. Man, the jig is up. Peter's busted, he says, but he denies it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. So he denies it in a very legal format to this little servant girl. No, no, I don't, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Never seen the guy. And, he, and then he, he said, I got to get out of here. So he scoots away, moves a little farther away. Notice a rooster crowed. And that didn't jar Peter's mind yet to remember what Jesus had told him. Peter, before, you, you know, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And 
So crow number one, Peter has to go, uh-oh, that was a rooster crow. I got one more left. You know, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe, maybe this is happening. He, he's still not there. And, but he can't shake this servant girl, man. She is dogging him. The servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. I mean, if, if Peter could crawl in a hole and I die, that's what he'd do. He, he is now being sold out to everybody around him. You ever felt that way? Like, I mean, maybe it's you and, you, and somewhere where you are and everybody else is, is of the world and, and you're the only Christian. And maybe it's at the Thanksgiving table. Or maybe it's at the family reunion and you're the only Christian in your family. And you begin to get mocked. Oh, you believe in that? I thought we, we thought you were smarter than that. We, get, we, we thought you had more intelligence than to believe in that Christian stuff. And everybody now is coming down on you. That's hard to stand against that, isn't it? So Peter, again, uh, the servant girl says, hey, this is one of them. She calls attention to everybody and says, hey, here he is. A little later on, those who stood by said to Peter again, this is the third time, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. By the way, one of the people around that fire, it's a relative of the high priest servant Malchus whose ear was cut off. So they, they know Peter. They saw him there. Hey, you know, weren't you the guy with the sword, you know? And, and Malchus is still there. You know, I'm, I'm sure Malchus didn't have anything to say uh, because he's still going, is it really there? Is it? No, it's his right ear. Is it really there? He's not going to say a word. But the relative sees him and, and they say, hey, your speech shows it. You're a Galilean. You see, from Galilee, that was up in the north, and it was a more rural community. So they, they said things like, y'all. That's what Peter said. Y'all got it wrong. I don't know the guy. They said, hey, wait a second. Can you fix me some dinner? We were laughing about that between services. Uh, I went to school with a couple of girls that lived, uh, they had, their families were from Massachusetts. And so I was just getting to know them, and the one girl said, well, I'm going to go outside and get a drink from the bubbler. I'm like, bubbler? What's a bubbler? It's a water fountain. But that was there culturally, that's Massachusetts. Anybody here from up, up north, bubbler? And you, you don't drink Coke or soda, you drink pop. Is that right? Am I getting that right? See? So different areas have different dialects. And let me tell you something else. Different cultures have different dialects. And Peter's speech had revealed who he was. And I wonder for us, again, coming back to our words, I wonder how often your speech really reveals who you are. It's easy to play the game and look the part, but then you open your mouth and it's out of the heart. The mouth speaks, the Bible tells us. And, you know, maybe you say... Uh, I love the Lord, Jesus is first in my life, but maybe you talk about NASCAR all the time. Or maybe you talk about baseball all the time. Or maybe you use a lot of profanity when you talk. Now, watch what happens. They say, Peter, your speech shows it. Look at this. Then Peter began to curse and swear. Peter, what are you doing? Now, when it says curse, don't think curse like you and I curse. Or, Well, <laughs> let me take that back. In Jesus' name, no. When it's like other people curse, because we would never do such a thing with the mouth God gave us, not just the salivary glands, but the mouth God gave us. 
When it says that he cursed, it's from the root word anathema, which means to curse to utter destruction. Hey, if I know this guy, let me be eternally damned. That's big words, isn't it? How do you recover from that? And then he also swore, uh, used profanity, and he said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He denied the Lord. I do not. A flat-out lie. Any way you slice it is a flat-out lie covered with profanity. A lot of people use profanity. Uh, I find people don't know how to talk many times without profanity. It's very accepted. First thing God took from my life. When I got saved, I, I'll tell you honestly, I had a trash mouth before I got saved. And then I went off to a, a farrier school, horseshoeing school, and I just got saved, and everybody uses profanity. But God, first thing, it was no struggle. No struggle in my life. It went from profanity to nothing. No, no profanity. And the, it, people noticed. Like, they know, I couldn't believe that they noticed it about me. A guy that I was working with came down to the school, and the, one of the instructors said, you know what we noticed about that kid? He said, he never curses. Like, you notice that? It stands out. Because this is God's mouth. And out of... Out of one spring can't come both sweet and bitter waters. That's what James says. You're either a sweet spring or you're a bitter spring. And if you've got bitter water coming out and bitter waters flows out, out of your belly is supposed to flow rivers of living water, not bitter water. So it's, just, it's not to condemn. It's not to point fingers. It's just to say, one person told me one time, using profanity is the attempt of an ignorant person to express themselves. Now, I, I didn't say that. I'm just telling you what I heard someone else say. But I, I think there's some truth to that. Because we use profanity because we want to emphasize what we're saying. We really, really mean it, so we have to add some expletives. Can I challenge you that you don't need to? That you can exercise self-control over your language and you can choose not to utter that word that has negative and dirty connotations in our culture? Because this is the, these are the Lord's hands, these are the Lord's eyes, these are the Lord's mouth. And I'm not free to use his mouth for anything that I want to. But Peter does. So if you're sitting here going, man, I failed this morning on that. I kicked the dog and I said blankety blank and I cursed about my boss and my paycheck wasn't what it should have been. And, you know, maybe it's a common thing for you. But notice Peter did it too. And that's why Peter's story is so important to us. Because as we finish this section, as we get down to chapter 15 and, and stop there, we, we find ourselves just connecting with Peter because we wonder, God, what do you do when people fail? How do you, what is your, because it's one thing to go to a self-help, you know, book or, and talk about it. everybody says, well, you just got to, you know, Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with things. And there's all kinds of great sayings about failure and how to overcome failure. All that's true and all that's great. But what if God has a different opinion? What if God is a God of one chance? And if you blow it, you're out. It's not like God is not a God of video games where you just keep getting new lives all the time. I mean, it could be that way, right? How do you know? Remember, in the early church, this was their struggle. They faced tremendous persecution, and they divided on what do we do with people that deny the Lord in the face of persecution. That's what Peter's doing. He's being cowardice when he thought he was going to be strong. And he's denying the Lord. Some people don't. Some people that have gone on, that have lived in the early church, they, they 
stuck with the Lord, continued to confess his name, and got killed for it. And so if they did that and others have renounced his name to save their lives, is it fair to let them back in the church? This was a discussion they had. Some took a very hard line. No, we can't let them back in the church. They denied the Lord. And others took a more gracious line says, yes, they can be restored. Well, I think this passage would have been so important to them had they paid attention to the fact that Peter denied the Lord three times and he was restored. And I don't know what you've done or where you've been or you look back in your past and you deal with failure. And we all deal with failure. If you're doing anything in life, if you're breathing, you deal with failure. And let's watch what happens here. So, and and we'll, come, we'll close with some more thoughts on that. So Peter begins to curse and swear. And it's just at that time that all of a sudden that God-appointed rooster. By the way, uh, many of the records of the, the Talmud and the old Jew, Jewish writings say that roosters were not allowed in the city limits. So evidently this rooster had uh, snuck in that night because he had a job to do. <laughs> I got a crow. It's almost time. You know, he doesn't know it. You know, just, I got to be there. So he crows. Church history tells us that in the early, in the early church times that no one, people knew this about Peter. And to tease him, they would stand behind him and say, <laughs> Could you imagine I mean, talk about people rubbing your failure in your face. So the rooster crows, and Luke tells us that Peter, that, excuse me, that Jesus looked at Peter, just looked at him. Now, do you think he scowled at him? Do you think he, do you think he gave him the old evil eye? You know, just made this scrunched up face like, you're going to get it, Peter. See, I told you, you're a failure. Because that may be the face you picture because that's what the face your parents had or your dad had in your life every time you failed. Sneered at you. Told you so. Told you you're just a failure. Is that the, the face Jesus had? I don't think so. I think when Jesus looked at him, I think he had spit on his face. He may have been bleeding by this time from being pummeled about his head. I don't know for sure, but whatever it was, Peter saw him. At the same time, verse 72 tells us, Peter called to mind the word that Jesus has said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So he remembered the word that Jesus spoke. And look, at this is so important. And when he thought about it, he wept. He wept bitterly. The word here, there's two words that can be used to cry or to weep. One means a silent weeping. The other means an out loud wailing. That's this word. When Peter wept, he wept. He let it loose. You ever have, where it just comes out, you can't stop it. He was so overcome by his own feelings of guilt and shame. I should have stayed with him. I should have been there with him. I should be taking a beating with him. And I denied him. You ever done something you regret so much? So much. And if you could do anything to turn back the clock, you would. How do you think Peter feels? You think he would just want to crawl in a hole think he'd love to turn back the clock think he'd love to take it back but he can't and when he thought about it everything in the world is designed for you not to think for you to read the bible and just check it off the list but never to think about it it's amusement without thinking 
There's all kinds of amusement in your life. Don't think about the Word of God. Don't think about what Jesus said. Just turn on the TV and forget about it. I mean, it was just church for crying out loud. We go every week. The pastor just blah, 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 blah. And you go home, and then as soon as you've heard it, it's gone. But there's a skill that is being lost among our young folks. There's a skill that's being lost among all of us because we spend so much time in front of the television, in front of movies, in front of video games and all that. We're losing the ability to think deeply about things. And therefore, so few people ever experience the beauty, let me say that again, the beauty of conviction. Conviction in your life. Because the question is, how does Peter recover? I mean, if that was you, put yourself in Peter's sandals. And this was you. And Jesus has just looked at you. And you've blown it. And you know it. How many people I know in the Christian world would just run and hide and never again be effective in ministry? Never again be effective in walking with the Lord because they feel they don't deserve it. So the question is, what does God do? We know from the rest of the story, because we know the rest of the story, that Jesus says, go tell the, or, uh, the, the angel, I think, says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Which probably scared the tar out of Peter. Ah, I'm in trouble. And then we see this, this awesome reunion on the beach in the Gospel of John between Peter and Jesus. Jesus is there on the beach and Peter sees it's the Lord and he dives in and he swims to the Lord. And, and the Lord recommissions him. says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's a much humbler Peter at that time. He's learned a thing or two by his failures. Uh, Jesus, you know I love you. He doesn't say, I want to talk to you about the past. I want to talk to you about what happened back there at the high priest's house. He doesn't, Jesus, listen, Jesus doesn't say a word about it. Jesus has moved on. And Peter, I want you to move on too. Do you love me? That's the question. He doesn't say, Peter, did you fail me? He says, do you love me? And I think Peter honestly does. And he says, you know I love you. You know I do. And Peter never stopped loving him. David never stopped being a man after God's own heart, even though he stumbled into adultery, being stupid. Never stopped being a man after God's own heart. And you can just go all the way through. So just by way of closing, how, does, how do you, how do I, how does someone, after you fail, how do you keep from just packing it in and checking out and giving up? Well, your biggest failure is the failure to get, never get back up after you've fallen. So the, the first thing is you have to know that God desires to still use you. And sometimes, because of your failure, to use you more powerfully. Because now you've experienced humility. You've made some mistakes that you won't make again. Because you've been there and I ain't going back there. So you have a testimony. But the second thing is church. Let me say church. As a church, if God wants to restore people through confession, through repentance, then shouldn't we too? Sometimes the church is harder on people than God. Well, you've been divorced in the past. You're done. Sorry, jigs up. No use for you in the kingdom anymore. And then you live with that sense of, well, I failed. You know, I know I could have been a better husband. I know I could have been a better wife. Maybe I should have stuck it out. But I, it, I did. I didn't. I, this is what happened. And, and now here you are. You've come a little longer in your Christian life. And you're desiring to serve the Lord. And the church says, well, you ever, you ever gone through this? You ever gone through that? Well, yeah. 
well, sorry, you're, you're disqualified. And I'm going to tell you, confession and repentance requalify you. Requalify you. And then, so the final part of that is, it's, so the God, the church, and people, um, and then yourself. Sometimes you're your own worst enemy. If you failed, it's your own mental thing that says, well, now I'm done. I can't, you, you fail to get back up and to get back in. It's not because the church is condemning you. It's not because God is condemning you. It's not because you're useless. It's because you're condemning yourself. And you've learned to live in that self-condemnation. And, and then someone like yourself who has a valuable part in the body of Christ will never fully accomplish what God has for you because you're still living in your past failures instead of with Christ moving on and embracing forgiveness, repentance. And sometimes you've got to weep bitterly, man. Sometimes you recognize it and you go, I'm such a loser. I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I said that and hurt them. So much fear. It's not of God. Forgiveness, repentance, confession, love, and ministry, and restoration is what we're all about. Aren't we glad for Peter? We'll read more of his story as we get into future chapters. Let's pray. Father, as we close the pages of the Bible, I pray for this group here sitting before you, Lord. Uh, any that are struggling with condemnation over past failures and um, being kept separate because of that, Lord. I pray you would restore. You just be, use Peter as an inspiration for all of us, Lord, because none of us are without failure. Lord, I pray that, that folks that have experienced that, that have experienced that weakness and that failure, and just would rise up, that, that the treasure that you've given us is in earthen vessels, so that the excellence of the power would be of you and not of us and would accomplish great things on your, for your name's sake as they are restored. It's in Jesus' name all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand.